This is a podcast from meow.net. Meow! Connecting people working for cultural democracy in Europe and America, this is a culture of possibility. With Arlene Goldbard and Francois Matarasso. Welcome to episode 14 of A Culture of Possibility, a monthly podcast about community-based arts and all things cultural democracy. I'm Arlene Goldbard, and I'm speaking to you from Lamy, New Mexico, which is in the southwest of the United States, just outside Santa Fe. Um, and I want to turn to my co-host, Francois, to introduce himself. Hello. Hello, Arlene. I'm Francois Trasso. I'm a community artist working in Europe, currently based in the UK in Nottingham. And um, I'm glad to be here with a, a couple of old friends and people I've worked with over a number of years, in some case many years, and whose work I have a great admiration for, David Slater and Alan Lydiard. David, would you introduce yourself first? Hello, yes, I'm, I'm David Slater, and I'm a theatre maker, and I'm speaking from uh, my uh, little study cave in a house in South London, in the UK. Thank you. And Alan? Hello, um, I'm Alan Lydiard, lovely to be here, lovely to see you all. Um, I'm in the south of Spain. I'm in Jerez de la Frontera, in a little um, place that I have um, where I kind of escape to um, whenever I can. And it's been a really fruitful place to work from. Um, but I'll be back in England soon. I'm based mainly in Leeds in the UK. Thank you, Alan. Thanks, everybody. I'm so excited to be here with you. Our, I, I want to say for our listeners that we have kind of a general topic this time, but a lot of stories coming from different places to tell about it. And it is, um, I would say, making art um, with, about, um, and as older people <laughs> and that experience, all the different ways that it, that it manifests for us. So let's just start g giving people some introduction to your work. Um, David, if you wouldn't mind going first, say a little bit about your journey as a theater maker and how it dovetails with our topic today. Um, so I started out as a theater maker, I suppose, in the early 1970s and uh, studied, uh, took a theatre course in a, an amazing college in the southwest of, the, of uh, England called Dartington. And, of course, I wanted to be the next director of the National Theatre and all the rest of it, and uh, <laughs> huge ambitions. Um, but one of the things that... Um, there, was a, there was a project. Um, I directed a play by um, a playwright called John Arden called The Business of Good Government, and it was another take on the Christmas story. And um, we took it to a tiny little village in, in southwest England, in Devon. Um, and I thought, OK, we're going to do it at 7.30. But all the villagers, most of them were in their 60s, 70s and 80s. And they said, no, you have to start at six o'clock because we all go to bed at eight o'clock. And then uh, we got there, and before we could start the play, there were sandwiches and cakes and tea and just this amazing hospitality. And so right from the get-go, 
I just learnt about needing to dovetail into the fabric of people's lives, ordinary everyday lives, and the importance of hospitality uh, to to everything. And then, um, cut a long story short, I suppose I've had the privilege of making theatre with people in um, for over 45 years in the same community, or two communities side by side, um, just south of the River Thames in South London. So my work has really been a continuous practice about relationship and exploring that quite a question about um, what would happen if you grew older with a theatre at the end of your street, with an art space at the end of your street. What could be possible and how could that help create some kind of uh, ecology uh, with people of all ages? Um, and we, live, we work in very diverse communities in South London, um, actually exploring What's the relationship of the theatre making to the the civic, the civic realm, the civic? Um, uh, so about um, theatre as a part of making and remaking community. That process. Cool. And David, I know when I met you before, um, it was through Intelligy Arts, and uh, uh, I wonder if you did would want to say a, just a word or two about your association there. Yes, well, uh, Entelechy Arts is the company that I founded or co-founded actually with an area health authority. Um, they were, uh, so this was in the 1980s, the early 1980s, and they were in the process of closing down um, huge uh, long-stay asylums. Uh, they were right around the outskirts of London, these huge buildings where people who didn't fit into society were banished, exiled. So it might be uh, 16-year-olds who had a child and didn't happen to be married. It might be people who had a learning disability or, or intellectual impairment, who, who people who just didn't fit. And um, in the early 1980s, there was a, a really enlightened social policy, which was bringing people, closing these awful, awful places and enabling people to come back into community, the communities that they'd originally been exiled from. And this particular health authority had the, the vision of actually asking artists to go on that journey back into community. So artists helping to discover or uncover or recreate community. And out of that kind of request, um, Intelligy Arts was born uh, in South London and then over the last 32 years it's um, just grown and grown to involve um, many many people of a very rich diverse community in which it's based. Yeah, we're we're going to put URLs for some of the organizations and things that are mentioned um, in at the Meow web, website when we post the podcast and I definitely advise people to click on the ones that David and Alan are going to provide because they are amazingly rich and they have a lot of incredible documentation. So thanks David. So Alan, tell us a little bit about you. Thank you. Well, um, 
I, um, I started at school, you know, I wanted to be in the theatre. I just loved the theatre. I thought it was amazing. And when I left school, I wrote to every theatre in the country, uh, every regional theatre in the country, to see if I could get a job. And two replied, uh, Harrogate in Yorkshire and Bournemouth in the south. So I chose Harrogate, and I went to Harrogate as what they called a student ASM, 25 shillings a week, uh, doing everything. I mean, mostly making cups of tea for people. But I loved it. Everything I loved about it, it was just wonderful. And um, as I grew up in the theatre and started to you know, be a technician or be an actor or be a bit of a director to start with, I started to kind of... Uh, learn about things, you know. I started to learn about uh, wonderful things. And so, in a way, all I'm doing at the moment and continue to do is try to learn about myself and the world that I live in. And that's really all I'm doing. Um, but basically, I, um, I got a job. Um, I was very lucky. I got a job at uh, a touring theatre company in the East Midlands. So um, Francois will know about this. It was called the Emma Theatre Company, and it toured to village halls all over the East Midlands, including Nottingham. And, um, and I started directing there. And I, lo and I loved it, you know, to be a director felt like a really great thing to do. And I was very ambitious. So I started to apply for jobs all over the place to get a big job in a theatre and, and eventually ended up running a few theatre companies um, and became what I suppose is a sort of traditional theatre director in traditional regional theatre, making doing traditional plays and trying to entertain audiences with that kind of work. And to be honest with you, the more I did it, the more I felt uneasy about it, the more I didn't enjoy what I was doing. And I realised um, that um, I was... Um, I got a job next in Dundee. Dundee you know, in the north of um, uh, Scotland, well, not so much the north of Scotland, but definitely towards um, the north of Scotland. And I was in a theatre there called Dundee Repertory Theatre. And it did plays that you could have seen in Guildford in the south of London. Nobody from Dundee went to the theatre. Nobody in Dundee was interested in the theatre. A few people that came from Brocky Ferry, a sort of posh bit of the theatre, uh, a posh bit of, of the of Tayside, you know, would come into the theatre. But it wasn't like a place that was for the people of Dundee. It was called Dundee Repertory Theatre, and it um, and it did plays like I Open My Cream uh, Front Door and uh, Agatha Christie's and, you know, just very kind of mild, boring stuff. Anyway, I was very irritated by it all and I started to sort of try to knock on doors and say we should be doing other things and eventually I managed to become an associate director of Dundee Repertory Theatre and had the job of developing what was then called a community activities community activities so what I did was I went out into Dundee and I talked to people and I started to get to know people and I started to understand more about those people and started to understand more about what they wanted to see in their theatre and that's what we started to put on. So slowly, 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 this theatre in Dundee 
in the 1970s uh, became not a theatre for the middle class, rich people of the local richest bit of Dundee, but it became a theatre for the people. It did plays by Dundonians, for Dundonians, with Dundonians in it. It had the music of Dundee in the work that we were doing. And it was an incredible learning curve for me. I met some of the most beautiful people in the world doing that work. And it stuck with me forever. But I'm sorry I'm going on a bit here, but forgive me. Just please let me um, continue this journey a little bit. Because from Dundee, I went to Glasgow. Glasgow, City of Culture, 1990. You know, you couldn't have got more posh theatre than City of Glasgow 1990. Everybody from Peter Brook, from the Mali Drama Theatre, from Robert Lepage to Ninagawa, to all these people came to Glasgow to be part of Glasgow 1990 City of Culture. And having been in this little Dundonian world and seeing this work by these extraordinary artists from across the world really changed me again. And so suddenly I became an internationalist. Suddenly I was talking with Peter Brook. Suddenly I was having dinner with great artists and we were discussing how we would make ensembles together and we would work together to develop something that was really needed in this world, you know. And so I took the community arts from Dundee and the international work that I discovered in Glasgow and got a job in Newcastle in a, uh, for... Uh, a company called Northern Stage, where I brought both those things together to create a new type of theatre for me and for many others that was a combination of the international arts world and the community arts world and found a way to make them meld and bring them together and create the best of both sides of it. And it was, again, a wonderful, beautiful experience. I formed an ensemble there, an ensemble company of young performers, and, um, and made them become the kind of centre of the work that we would do. So they weren't just actors, they were actually going out in communities, making work in communities, bringing it back into the theatre, etc., etc. And so that built. And then finally, I arrived, in, uh, um, I arrived at the end of that journey in, in, in Newcastle and retired... And, uh, and came to live in Spain, where I am now, and, um, and gave up. I thought, well, that's the end of my career. But after a month, I was bored, and so I thought, I've got to do something. And I started thinking about the great artists that I remembered, the people like Ninagawa, people like um, uh, Pina Bausch, and, I th and, and what inspired me about them was the sense of company and and the work that they were doing with older people so i started to form this company called the performance ensemble which is basically where i'm at now which is an ensemble company of about 20 older people creating work which is basically starts from them so the work always starts from them uh, uh, and and we tell stories about what it is to be old, um, but it's not, uh, it's not reminiscence, it's not, it's not looking back, it's becoming something uh, much different than that. It's becoming a kind of contemporary old company of 
old, gritty performers making work about themselves. It's a super great story. It's a long story, so forgive me. Thank you. Listening to, to both of those journeys, I was struck by parallels with my own because I also discovered theatre in school and thought that that was where I was going to go. And we're, we're all of a similar age um, now. Um, men in our late 60s, 70s. And uh, the thing that strikes me is we were very lucky that at that particular moment in British, maybe Western European, maybe North American as well, culture, there were there was an openness and possibilities to do things. So we, we all started with this idea, I mean, David wanting to be director of the National Theatre and so on, and um, Alan with his passion um, writing to all those those theatre companies. And it was possible that doors could open for us in ways that probably can't now. And I'm, I'm interested in a couple of things of that. One is, of course... Um, there's been an enormous expansion of this work, but it's so much harder for young people to find their way in the way that we found our way in 40 and 50 years ago. And, and the other is just how interesting it is that theatre, <clears throat> theatre on the one hand, everybody thinks... Uh, like Alan described, you know, an Agatha Christie, a, a proscenium arch, a, a big, you know, uh, auditorium with, with red velvet seats and so on. But actually, theatre's just this incredibly capacious, flexible thing. And what both David and Alan have done in their work has been to create new forms of theatre that serve the needs of the people that you were working with and your own passions that didn't look like any other kind of theatre beforehand. And I just think it's wonderful that you've been able to stretch this, what you, what you learned in school, what you learned in college and, and take that form into such interesting, um, unique, special kinds of work that you have done I think there were so there were so many opportunities. I mean, I, I started um, work in South London by being given um, a warehouse on the banks of the River Thames with a beautiful Canadian sprung dance floor, um, and five years of there you are, do something with the community. Um, it, I was working for higher education, and it was a, a college that was starting what I suppose would be one of the forerunners of applied theatre courses. And they hadn't got any idea of what they wanted me to do, and I hadn't got any idea. So we just opened the doors and see who wandered in. And um, it was there that I... And some of the people that wandered in were older women in their 80s and early 90s. And so this is uh, was in a, a South London 
Docklands community or former Docklands community. So people who had been born in the last decade, in the, in the, in the late 1890s. And these women had survived everything that the 20th century had thrown at them. So they'd, they survived two world wars. They'd survived the Depression. They'd, just, they'd lived in such, um, just such huge, hugely challenging circumstances. And they'd come out flourishing. And they survived on song, on stories, and on dance. And so that was I in my mid-twenties, this raw young theatre maker. And I just, I just apprenticed myself to them. Um, uh, because it was, you couldn't, you know, if you were within their company for about 15 minutes, it was like being in an opera. They had, they had a song for every conceivable human emotion. They couldn't literally get through 15 minutes as a group without bursting into song. And I, they went on these things called binos, which was kind of remnants from the 1930s, where they'd hire a bus, a coach, and they'd, they'd uh, go down to the south coast, so the south coast, England's south coast, um, and uh, they'd all arrive with these plastic carrier bags stuffed full of things, and then they'd instruct the driver to drive along the seafront. They needed a pub, they needed alcohol, they needed food, they needed a piano, and they needed a microphone. And you know, and there was I, innocent, wet behind the ears, naive, all the rest of it, um, going in with them. And of course, they literally took these places over. And out of these plastic bags came wigs, costumes, props, and they just kind of created this theatre for, you know, like nothing that I'd ever been taught or conceived as possible. But also they engaged everyone else in the, in the, uh, in the pub. So they'd get the cook out of the, uh, the, the kitchen and start, and he would be starting, you know, speaking Shakespeare, reciting Shakespeare. And so um, I think that was my kind of... Um, first real experience of, of theatre making in South London and of course kind of like we formed a company together and then for the next decade they made work with that raw energy uh, and bits of my theatre training and things um, it was but 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 that opportunity where does that exist yeah, today yeah. I don't think it does mm. yeah I think that's right sorry to interrupt I um I remember a show that I saw um, when Glasgow was a 1990 city of culture, as I said, and all these amazing artists from all over the world had come to Glasgow. But in Edinburgh, which is quite a posh city, they were doing a show at the Old Travers that was based on the lives of homeless men in a hostel telling the stories of their lives. It was called Glad and it was made by the, um, the Grass Market Project. Um, and it was an incredible experience for me um, and taught me actually more than a lot of the stuff that I was le learning about in, uh, in Glasgow. And this idea of the Beano and the women in your uh, group, uh, it, it kind of came to life with me with these men in their, um, 
in their 50s, 60s and 70s, mostly alcoholic, mostly um, um, uh, in recovery, trying to be in recovery, uh, living in a hostel in Edinburgh, but telling stories and singing songs and doing Shakespeare uh, in a way that I'd never heard before. And I remember one of them particularly doing the speech by Richard II, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings, spoken by this alcoholic homeless man. And honestly, it was the most powerful rendition of that Shakespearean text that I'd ever heard. And it, it made me think there's something else going on here, you know? The people have got more to say and more to express than these people in these theatres across the other side of the, of the country. And we need to be looking after them and we need to be working with them uh, in order to make art or theatre or entertainment, whatever you want to call it, you know? So I, I can buy into your story of the Beanos in the South... The, <laughs> in the south going on the uh, coaches maybe, that would you know, be a fantastic truth and piece realness of work, too you know? i mean not maybe those are slightly embarrassing words but i just when i hear your stories that's what i perceive is a search for okay but what's true here you know what's real here behind all these uh, successive mm. facades you know that were erected around what theater was supposed to be i think francois had a a, a question or uh, i'd i'd like to hear I mean, you've both been doing work recently. Um, David has just done a piece in Coventry, a very particular kind of piece, and um, Alan has, uh, did a, a, a beautiful piece, at, which was the reopening of, of the Leeds Playhouse after the pandemic last summer. So it would just be nice to hear a little bit about the, the, the intimacy of the the creation of, of these two pieces. David, will you will you kick us off? Um, yes, well, I, I, um, I did a piece of work um, for Coventry City of Culture, um, like you, you were mentioning Glasgow City of Culture. Um, but, but I think, and City of Culture is, I think it is such an exciting opportunity because you literally, I don't know, it, it enables because... Um, because the whole city is exploring or listening to its cultural possibility. So there are so many possibilities um, that, 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 um, that are available. And um, I worked on a collaboration with a Japanese company called Obokushi, which means translated ageing, dementia, death. And it was a version of a, a performance that I'd seen in Tokyo um, about three years ago called Theatre of Wandering. And Theatre of Wandering was the story of an older man who is wandering through the streets of a city looking for his wife who's living with dementia. And the audience journey with this man and they go into shops, into front rooms. They literally wander through the fabric of the city on this journey. And so this was a really huge opportunity to recreate, to reimagine this story um, with citizens of Coventry on the streets of, of the city. And um, 
I, I was I was just been reading your book, Eileen, uh, Eileen, <laughs> The Culture of Possibility. And there was a line that kind of just jumped up out of out of it where, where you wrote to rehearse in the realm of imagination, the challenges that we confront in real life. And I think the making of this piece was a was really rehearsing, reimagining this story. It was about so the piece of, was about care and the city and community. And we made it with older people, some of whom happen to be living with dementia. We made it with people working in health teams. We made it with people from the police. We made it with people from um, social care agencies. We made it with families. And we rehearsed on the streets. We rehearsed in doctor's surgeries, in a police station. We'd kind of like made the whole process kind of saturate into into um, into the city. We, we worked in markets, we worked with shopkeepers, and um, we, we reimagined this story because, of course, everyone we met, whether they happened to be um, social prescribers working in the health service or clinical psychologists or young police officers, the story of living with dementia, it was their story. Everybody had this story. And so we literally worked together in the rehearsal room and created uh, this piece of theatre, The Journey of the Older Man. And um, with all of the, the lived experiences, the personal experiences and the professional experiences of, of the company, um, working with a lot of artists from Coventry as well, and that was uh, that. The challenge of that, or the co-working of that, was terrific. For instance, we'd, we'd work, kind of worked out some of the creative team. We worked out, okay, well, what happens is that um, this older man really doesn't want to ask for help, and then he bumps into this young police officer, and she's there in that scene, and then she goes, and then the next scene is this and this. So we in the devising room. That's what happens. And the young police officer said, no, it doesn't happen like that because I wouldn't go away. I have a duty of care. And so literally we made the story up from the experience of whoever was in the space at that time, uh, literally not knowing what we were doing, but of course utterly knowing what we were doing because we were held by the experiences and the imaginations of this huge, diverse group of people that were co-creating the piece together. Um, and then, of course, it was performed on the streets. Some people bought tickets, but some didn't, because deliberately, again, it was designed for people to stumble upon it, um, just to, to, to experience uh, the, the theatre piece by accident. So it was, uh, it was a really thrilling experience and I think really exciting in a sense in the way that it was that opportunity to to work with prof people with um, lived experience and professional experience um, and create and and the way that the making of theatre created a new space for possibly a different kind of conversation or a different way of coming together for, by all there, parts. Thank, thank you so much David um, sorry Alan I, I was just going to turn to you uh, yeah well, I, I was just going to say I saw the piece and um, I, I, I thought it was an extraordinary piece of work. Um, 
I, I, um, I followed it through and, you know, you ended up in a, um, in a care home and you kind of celebrated with all those members of the care home the, the fact that you'd been through this together. But the thing that struck me was I didn't know who was part of the show and who just happened to be passing in the street at that moment in time. And that was a really incredible thing to hold on to, you know, because it, it, it was all part of the thing, you know, and you could just be participating in a piece of theatre without you knowing it um, and, and be a, a, an integral part of it for a moment, you know. And um, it's those little things in life that seem meaningless that suddenly become meaningful. And that's what you got all the time with that piece of uh, work, you know. Seemingly meaningless, but actually became extremely meaningful. And it was probably because somebody touched the collar in a particular way or turned round to see something that they thought was extraordinary. It, all of those moments became real creative, artistic, theatrical, uh, at the same time, you know? It was a really beautiful piece of work. Yeah, we, anyway. we invited the, the audience Good. to pay attention to the street, and then the story would emerge. Mm -hmm. Well, that word, I mean, we've been talking about this concept of emergence quite a bit on the podcast, because the best work, it seems to me, and it seems to be evolving that way from the people that we've been talking to, has been work that it precisely does that, precisely invites emergence and doesn't think, oh, something went wrong, but um, apprehends the moment and engages with the moment has to offer. Uh, you know, I want to ask you about another uh, one of your, um, of the productions that you were involved in around that in a minute, David, but, but maybe Alan, was it Promise of a Garden that you were going to tell us about? Uh, was that, and, and before you do, it's going to embarrass yeah. you, but I just want to say that my friend Francois had a title on that production, and it was Dramaturg, and you should feel free to mention if he had a role in that. Well, he, he, he hated the word dramaturg. He, we had a big conversation about it. I, you know, I think he thinks it's pretentious or, or, or something. You know, it's, he was... Um, he, he, he said he wanted to be called a caretaker, and, um, and that's what he did. He took care of us and just kind of led us and just tied it up around us, actually, uh, which is very interesting, tied it up around the script, the text, what we were doing, how we were doing it and why we were doing it. But, yeah, he had a, 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 a terrific role in it. And, um, I, I mean, I've known Francois for a long time. He worked with me at Norton Stage in, uh, you know, like in the 90s sometime. And, um, uh, and I've always been inspired by his work and always um, felt that he had a lot to say about theatre, you know, and I come from a theatre background. I'm not. I, that's where I. That's where I feel the most comfortable in a theatre, in a rehearsal room, and, and and the work that I do now undermines that all the time. Undermines what makes me feel safe, and Francois keeps me safe in an unsafe um, place. You know, so that's why I um, I work with him, and um, he. Um, and I have had long conversations. We used to meet every Thursday at five o'clock in the afternoon and have a chat for an hour. And that was it. You know, that was it. But actually, it was incredibly helpful and incredibly um, um, useful in the creation of this work that we did. 
I think my work's slightly different than David's in that I use a lot of um, uh, personal stories. So I'm, I take the personal story of the person and ask them to tell that story. So uh, it's about working with people to try to get them to tell me about what, what they feel is important to them and then to find a way to place it within a theatrical context in which it can become um, um, easy to take, you know, because you can just tell a story and it can go on and on and on. So it needs to be formed and it needs to be created. And, it, and, and, and in Francoise's words, it needs to be made into art because that's what I'm trying to do. Um, and we have this tagline, of, um, which again is from Francois, um, uh, art with the experience of age. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make art, but we're working from a premise that is actually a lot of older people have a lot to say, and we want to help them to say it. And we want to give them the opportunities. I spend a lot of time on presence. I am here, this is me, and I am fine, and I'm telling you about things, you know? And that's how we start our work. And I work with professionals and non-professionals. So I put them together. And so if I have a company, I try to have 10 professional performers and 10 non-professional performers and place them together and, um, and, and, and make sure that everybody knows that we're all equal in this, that we're all artists, we're all creating it and we're making it together. And it's quite beautiful, the gifts that the non-professionals give the professionals and the gifts that the professionals give the non-professionals. And this, that is how we made The Promise of a Garden. Basically, it's stories of people living their lives with a sort of um, sense of gardening and gardens being an important part of their lives. And, 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 and it, you know, during the pandemic, the garden became a really important um, thing for people. You know, it, it gave them space to breathe and to feel connected to nature. And, uh, and, and these people were, were making very, I think, profound statements about the pandemic and what it was like for them uh, through the, the idea of creating a garden. So we started with an empty stage and by the end of the piece, it was filled with flowers and filled as a garden. And we brought everybody together and they sang a song together. And it's very simple. It's a very simple um, process. But there was something about it because it was real you know, again, to forgive this phrase, real people, but it was real people telling real stories about themselves. And that was the key to it. And it had a generosity. So, did I, you know? re am I remembering yeah. correctly reading on your website that you kind of put out a call to people and said, bring something to be situated in the garden and tell us the story of it? I love, I love that relationship. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 I, the, the I initial premise was that people could pop in at any time and see what we were doing and bring a gift and bring a flower or bring a, uh, some, or a story or whatever they wanted to do, see what we were doing and leave something of their own behind 
that could be anything. But actually, we weren't allowed to do that quite uh, because of um, lockdown and because of the pandemic. So what, how it worked was that we put out a call for people to make flowers. And we said, we want 5,000 flowers to fill our garden. Can you help us? And of course, we got thousands, more than 5,000. And they were all placed on the stage and people came to see the show <coughs> and, um, and could see their flower, you know, <coughs> in a month, loads of others, but yeah. it was good, yeah. It, the Sorry, the images of it water. were just gorgeous, you know, what I was able to, to, to see on the website. The, image of it, the images of it were just gorgeous, what I was able to see on the website. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I make theatre of images. That, that, that's, that's my work from being a, 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 a sad old theatre director. I, I, I love to make beautiful images. And so that's the crucial thing for me, that it should look beautiful. It starts on a white, an empty white space with this enormous black guy dancing. And it's just so beautiful, so beautiful. And then a flower will emerge and another will emerge and another will emerge. And then hundreds of flowers will come in. And then there'll be a little situtery where, you know, somebody can sit out there in the sunshine and tell a story about... Uh, their amazing backyard that became a garden. Yeah, very, you know, it was... Yeah. And it's involving dance, and it's involving music, and it's involving text, and it's involving imagery. That's the key to it. It's, it's lots of things. Beautiful. Thank you, Francois. I think there are several things that come out of listening to, to David and Alan now. Um, that I think are important, but maybe the the, the most important is what they, what Alan touched on already, which is, and we've talked about this in the past, you and I, Arlene, when we've talked about stories and the the way in which story has become or life story we should describe it has become a really important part of literature um, theater and community art in the last 30 years but the the point i'm trying to make here is that the the pieces that alan and david have described are very different but they start from real experience, lived experience, but crucially they're turned into art. And one of the, the work that I that worries me, both ethically and artistically, is the work that where the artist, I would say, is naive enough to think that it's enough simply to put someone's experience in a frame or on a stage or on a film, and that that is all that they need to do. But all of the, all of the complexity and the subtlety that we've just been listening to is exactly the work that turns life into something else, which both protects the people who are making it because they're not 
exposing themselves in the same way and allows other people, allows audiences to find themselves in something which is so particular. So when in The Promise of a Garden you have stories of all kinds of people, um, people who've grown up in Hong Kong and have moved to, to, to the UK, people who've, who've, um, uh, whose life experiences have taken them from being a priest to being a, um, a gardener and so on. Lots of experiences that on the, on one level, you would think, what does that have to do with me? How do I connect with that? But it's that process of art making that finds ways into that, 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 that finds the, the profoundly human element at, at, at the heart of it. I mean, David does a very similar thing with Bed. You know, we um, uh, Bed was a show that he's been doing for a long time, which he very kindly bought to Leeds um, and um, uh, made it with our company in Leeds. And although the stories they were telling were not the real stories of their particular lives, they were connected in a way that profoundly to people's lives. You know, they, it was people's lives. And the connections that they made to the, the public as they walked through the city of Leeds and sat next to, uh, uh, you know, an old man in a bed and asked them questions about their lives was pretty extraordinary. You know, that was a wonderful piece of work. And I'd seen that in lots of different locations. It's been done lots, hasn't it, has, it yeah, David? Yeah, no, it's... Uh... Well, bed is something I wanted to ask you a little bit more about, David. Um, I have this image in my mind because I looked at the video just very recently of you at one end of a big metal bed pushing it through a market. It looks like an open market and into a a space. Um, And there's, there's a person who appears to be very old lying in the bed and, um, well, you you tell the frame of what the what the story is, but then I want I I wonder if you can say something about a specific question I have, which is I noticed that on the site one of the performers had said that some people just they just couldn't handle it. They looked away, they walked away, they walked around the bed. They didn't want to face what they associated in their own minds or lives with with aging and 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 debility or whatever. And um, that that sort of raises this whole question of how our societies hold the idea of elders or or older people, whether it's someone to be respected, to be learned from, to be engaged with, or whether it's somebody who we're waiting to push them off the ice floe and you know get on with what we think real life is. So I was wondering if you could take bed for a minute and explain to our listeners what that was. And talk a little bit about how it engages question of how the society as a whole understands and relates to age. Yeah, well, Bed came out of um, working with uh, working with a group of um, eight-year-olds who felt that their stories, their life experiences, and those of their their neighbours, their peers, were not heard. They weren't seen. And it was about invisibility. They were saying that when they get on public transport or a bus or in the street, sometimes it feels like people just look through them. And they wanted to make theatre that literally tripped people up. 
that, that actually interrupted the course of their day. Um, and so, um, very courageously, they devised this piece, which involved four beds with four older women in their night clothes, abandoned, or seemingly abandoned, on the streets of a city. And the performance, uh, each performance lasted about two hours in duration. So that was, that was it. Um, and then the, the performers held, they had created as a company narratives. So there were stories and some of those stories um, were held embodied in objects that lay on the bed or in a bag or so that um, if anybody wanted to engage or open up conversation, then fragments of a story, of a life, uh, were revealed. Um, and it, the first time we did it, we did it in, in South London, near the art space, and we had no idea what was going to happen. And we reveal, we, we just wheeled out uh, one bed onto the market because the, the performance at the arts centre is by a street market. So we abandoned a, a bed. And within, and it was in uh, the middle of the day, and within about um, 20 minutes, two 14-year-old girls rushed into the theatre and they went up to the reception and they said, we want to report a crime. And it was just uh, such a powerful moment where just they just kind of like and and very quickly and then within an hour there were the police were there and they didn't know what to do and everybody so we got we had to very quickly think okay well we need to involve um, uh, or inform a lot of people about this uh, because it's but um, and I think the piece evolved with yeah but lots of mixed responses as you say many people didn't want to engage they just wanted to walk by literally trying to avoid it um but many many people went up and opened up conversations and then clusters of people would gather around a bed and there'd be this kind of communal conversation where people were sharing their own experiences of their own experiences or their relative experiences or um, uh, or their concerns about a grandparent or so it was a way of then opening up this public conversation um, through engagement with this work of art that um, you, I remember when you first told me that story I was very moved and shocked in a way by it because of course as you said to me at the time, the, the two teenage girls were absolutely right because the, the piece was about the crime, the social crime of the neglect and abandonment of people. And they, you had turned that into a, a literal image where they had seen somebody abandoned in the street and had come in to report a crime. And it, and it, it was very powerful to, to see that reaction because you know it, it underlines again that that all art all theater has the potential to be powerfully political powerfully um, radical and the fact that you're 
but it's been devised by women in their 70s and 80s who've never made theatre before. Um, doesn't uh, it, it challenges the, the, the assumption that political, powerful theatre has to be made by accredited artists who've got a, um, you know, a, a training and, and a status. And uh, that, for me, is is so. Um, I don't know. It's the it's the it's the reason that I think all this work matters so much in the end. Ellen. There were two mo- there were two moments uh, in Leeds when I was watching Bed that really came to me. One was a family of, I think they were Syrian or, uh, I can't remember what nationality they were, but they were definitely from another place. And they were sitting on the bed playing chess with this old man in the bed. And they were just chatting away and it was just an incredible... um, You would never see that that mixture. I think they were from Senegal, weren't they? I think they might have been from Senegal. Uh, this family from Senegal sitting on the bed, having a conversation with this old man and playing chess. It, it felt like so unusual to see and yet so powerful and so real because the communication that was happening was immense and beautiful. And that was a really amazing moment. But there's a second moment also where... Um, uh, this was overheard. Uh, the bed is happening in the street. There's lots of people crowding around. And this one person walks by. And as he walks by, we hear, oh, for fuck's sake, I hope this isn't art. And, uh, you know, and it, again, it was just so powerful, you know, this, this intervention of this person saying something like that. That's Forgive hilarious. me, I swore, but I hate <laughs> it, so it's okay. I've had that thought myself many, many times, not usually walking in the street, you know. Yeah. 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 But it's true, isn't it, David? You yeah, can, you can um, tell one. this is true. Oh. Amazing. No, I was just saying we're, we're kind of coming to the end of our time. And one of, one of the things that... that take away from this again is I've often, I mean one of the reasons that I have done that I do what I do is um, because the people that I work with I have always found much more interesting than me and it it's difficult to say that without sounding a bit pretty <laughs> but it's true it's the, it's the fact and and it's that the joy of working with other people and the the interaction between us all creates things that are completely unexpected and that no one could could um, foresee I mean even the idea of taking the bed out of the out of the theater out of the art space into the street changed everything and changed some of the people's lives who were involved in it and that it's it's so much more rewarding to uh, to be working with people and uh, bringing their ideas into that space and making the work out of that. 
I think the uh, the thing that um, strikes me as somebody that wanted to be an artist and a director is recognising that there's nothing special in that. Actually, we're all artists and everybody's an artist and they, they make stuff all the time and create stuff all the time, despite themselves sometimes and not knowing why they're doing it. But that's the stuff. Uh, that is radical. That is the stuff that is magical. And that is the stuff that interests me now. I don't find much interest going to the theatre and seeing the well-made play anymore. I find it dull, mostly. But I find it exceptionally rewarding to be on the streets of a city and see the people working away, doing what they do, and being creative in their daily lives. And that's the bit that I would like to capture and try to get hold of and try to work yeah. with well, let and me get ask to know to... better. Uh, sorry, yes. please, David, go ahead. I would just go to say, yeah, it feels like just that sleight of hand between the ordinary and the extraordinary in the same moment. Yeah, that's somehow. beautiful. Well, we are running out of time, but I wanted to ask you guys one more question uh, before we go, and that has to do with, you know, Alan, when you were narrating your story, you you kind of came into making theatre with older people um, as a way to uh, rescue your art and your spirit from a premature retirement, you know, so it's something that you've, you've chosen at this stage of your life, And, and but David, you're, the origin story you told us, you started out apprenticing yourself to these older women, and you've aged as you've gone through this long journey of, of making the work together, and I'm just wondering if there's anything you want to say about how that that process of um, why you make art and and how you uh, see yourself in it has changed for you as you ha- have now become what we here call elders. I don't like it too much, but it's better than an old person, right? I, um, I, I've been um, inspired by others, you know. Um, I saw um, Ukiyo Ninagawa. I, I, I invited him... Um, a very famous Japanese artist. I invited him to Northern Stage and he came with his production of Midsummer Night's Dream. And, um, uh, and I met him then and he was a great guard of the theatre, you know, touring the, 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 the world with his famous Shakespearean productions. But then he suddenly said, I'm bored of this. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to find a new radical way to work and I'm going to do that by inviting some old people to come and work with me. And he put an advert in the newspaper and, you know, thousands of people came and said, I want to work with you, uh, Ninagawa. And he he chose 30 of them and he started making work with them. And it was radical work for him. This great artist was suddenly going, no, I want to learn from the older people like me, other older people. So he was a great inspiration for me. And the second one is, is, um, is Pina Bausch, who made a piece called Contact Off uh, with old people from her city of Wuppenthal. She'd already made this piece um, uh, and it had toured the world in famous festivals all over the world. But the piece that she made with older people became greater uh, as, a, as, a, as an art 
piece and toured. It's now on at Sadler's Wells, I think. It's now on in Sadler's Wells with the old company. And, and, um, and it became a new type of theatre because it, it be made sense because it was made by old people. And those two, uh, uh, this is what I would like to do. I want to create a company. I want to create an ensemble. I want it to be old, and I want them to make wonderful, wonderful work. And I want it to be based on Maybe their so. lives. I think you're doing a good job so far. Pretty simple. David, what would you like to tell us about that? <laughs> I, I think I want to be Alan's groupie, actually. Um, I've uh, actually... Um, because I, I've just made a, this uh, scary and thrillingly exciting move of actually um, s stepping out of the company that I formed 32 years ago. And it's now uh, so been involved in that process of shedding, of letting go, still kind of having a connection in a light touch way. But um, really sort of slightly walking out of the door into this huge unknown uh, space. And um, I think there's, I quite often think of the phrase, um, what will become of me? And it's a thing that I often hear a lot of um, people in older age saying. Um, and sometimes that's kind of spoken with a kind of dread or fear of, is it going to be downhill all the way now? But I think there's a beauty of that phrase. You can flip it into one that is to do with awe and possibility and, and that sense of adventures new. Um, so um, I don't know the answer to that question, but I'm very curious about it and yeah. wondering what, what next. Oh, I could go on for another hour, you guys, but sadly we have to pay attention to the clock and so we can. But I want to express my gratitude to both of you, David and Alan, for such a good conversation and such powerful work that you've been doing for, for such a long time. And we, we will link our, our listeners to places where they can read more and see more about what you're doing. I'm guessing my friend Francois might want to say something before we close. Only that it's always a joy to hear you, to be in your company and to hear you talking about your work because... I think that sense of openness to possibility that David was just talking about is one of the most precious things I recognize in artists that I admire. Just that, that willingness to live with uncertainty. And I, as we get older, um, I don't know if we live with more uncertainty, but we may be more aware of the uncertainty that we live with. Thank you so much, so everybody. You. Now that you've heard the podcast, you can go to the website to find out more details, including references and links. The website's at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.